We admire their beauty, breathe in their fragrance, and are nourished by their produce. While Darwin called their origin an abominable mystery, the Bible says they were created in the beginning. What are they? Stay tuned. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Flowering plants are all around us. They decorate the landscape, fill our gardens with vibrant colors and luscious scents, and are the source of delicious fruits and vegetables. But how did they originate? While this is not a difficult question from a biblical perspective, the origin of flowering plants is a dilemma for those who believe in evolution. Don't fade away during the next 15 minutes as we discuss Darwin's abominable mystery, the origin of flowering plants. We'll also talk about possible ways that they could have survived Noah's flood, and we'll find out what lessons we can learn from them. Dr. Gary Parker is an ICR biologist and founder of the Creation Adventures Museum in Arcadia, Florida. Flowering plants, those are the ones with which we most easily surround ourselves, the ones that form beautiful blossoms that ripen into delicious fruits. Tremendous testimony to Genesis 2-9 that God made the green plants both pleasant to the sight and good for food. Seems like he also made them to make sure we didn't get fooled by evolutionists. Charles Darwin himself called the origin of flowering plants, quote, an abominable mystery, unquote. <laughs> Created on day three, flowering plants are first mentioned in Genesis 1, verse 11. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Dr. John Silvius is professor of biology at Cedarville University in Cedarville, Ohio. He informs us that these wonderful flowering plants are called angiosperms. Flowering plants are seed plants, and the unique aspect of them is that the seeds actually are born inside of fruit. And so when we say flowering plants, we're using uh, the term angiosperms. Flowering plants are angiosperms, angio meaning vessel, and sperma meaning seed. There's a lot of variations in flowering plants, marvelous and beautiful plants they are. Many of them have showy flowers like the lilies and roses, uh, tulips, magnolia trees, but many of the flowering plants also have obscure flowers that we don't often notice, like the grasses and rushes, sedges and oak trees. Some flowering plants are woody and others are herbaceous, so you can have woody flowering plants like magnolia and flowering dogwood, or you can have those like the grasses and lilies that are herbaceous plants. They die back each year and survive only by the roots or, or by seeds. ICR Graduate School Dean Dr. Ken Cumming is a biologist who's amazed by the variety and design of flowering plants. With regard to the diversity that we see in angiosperms, these flowering plants that have such a multitude of presentation, as is mentioned, the difference between a marigold and a rose and a daffodil, dandelion, these are all different groups of plants that have different presentations. As we see them, 
There's rich color, there's rich form, a wide range of form and size, expression of perfumes that come from them. One has to say, uh, you know, what's the motivating force for all of these expressions to come forth? Well, I think you'd have to say that this is part of the artistic design of a great creator, and that is to put together colors and textures and fragrances, as well as organic molecules that would attract insects, especially for the angiosperms, which rely on insects such as moths and honeybees and beetles and even bats for fertilization of the eggs. Although scripture tells us that the beautiful and diverse flowering plants are a product of creation and originated in the Garden of Eden, not everyone believes it. Dr. Cumming explains the vast differences between the evolutionary view of the origin of angiosperms and the perspective held by creationists. It's anticipated that by evolution thinking that the ferns would have evolved into gymnosperms, which are the conifers and, and the plants that form cones. These cone-bearing plants then have been pictured as being the precursor of the angiosperms or the flowering plants. And all of this has taken place over somewhere up to 400 million years. So this is a period of uh, maybe anywhere from 200 to 50 million years ago. We're talking about the origin of plants according to the evolutionary story. On the other hand, from the creation point of view, the issue is, well, weren't there angiosperm flowering plants right from the beginning? Well, we read in, in Scripture that when the garden was created for Adam and Eve, that there were fruit trees in the garden. And these are a product of angiosperms, of flowering plants. They actually would be comparable to pears or apples or maybe even citrus fruit. And that particular kind of plant is, we would say, the most modern kind of plant of the flowering plants, the product of the flowering plants. But why did Darwin call the origin of flowering plants an abominable mystery? Dr. Parker explains. When you look back in the record, you know, fossils found in rock layers around the world, you look back and in Cretaceous rock, famous for dinosaurs and so on, you find lots and lots and lots of flowering plants of all the different kinds that we have on the earth at the present time everywhere. And then the rock layer below those, nothing. It looks like flowering plants just burst onto the scene in incredible diversity and variety. Well designed to multiply after their kinds. Now keep in mind they weren't created at that time. They'd been created on the third day of the creation week. And they had multiplied and filled the earth between the creation and after the fall and before the flood. They were everywhere. The fact that they showed up so abundantly in Cretaceous rock merely means that the waters of Noah's flood had finally reached the upland environments where the flowering plants and people thrived in the pre-flood world. And when an angiosperm fossil was discovered in a different rock layer, it only added to the evolutionary mystery of its origin. It wasn't too long ago that someone found a flowering plant in the rock layers below the Cretaceous. And, of course, the headlines and the stories in the newspaper said, you know, Darwin's abominable mystery solved. You know, we found the ancestors of the flowering plant. What did they find? 
a flowering plant. <laughs> they found one that just looked like the flowering plants that we have today. It did nothing at all to solve Darwin's mystery. It made the mystery even deeper. No matter how far back you go, when you find flowering plants, you find flowering plants with all the parts intact, just as we would expect on the basis of creation. Now, let's consider how flowering plants could have survived the global catastrophe of Noah's flood. Dr. Cumming gives us a few examples of how these plants could have made it through the flood and been redistributed in a new world. First of all, the ark could have carried a lot of domestic plants there, not only as food sources, but in the form of seeds, to repopulate the earth with a lot of domestic plants upon landing on the mountains after the flood was over and the waters were receding. Secondly, we envisioned that with such a massive catastrophic event as the flood, it would have probably broken down most of the standing vegetation and dispersed it. But once it was floating on the rising flood tide, it would have aggregated itself in gigantic mats. All of this, we know from Mount St. Helen, when the trees were all blown down by the volcanic eruption and then swept by a gigantic wave into Spirit Lake, that they all aggregated into a floating mat. And in that form, there was lots of plants and animals that associated themselves with this particular kind of, of floating mat. Interestingly, the ocean itself could have provided a safe haven for some flowering plant seeds during the Great Deluge. A modest number of seeds can be found to float in the ocean and not be damaged by the salt water, but others might be damaged. If some of the seeds settled to the bottom, uh, if they were distributed across the surface of the ocean floor, it's a possibility that they could have been redistributed and end up in locations where they could have sprouted after the land was dried out. So there's a variety of good explanations for the possibility of repopulating the earth after the flood. This would have allowed the angiosperms before the flood to persist after the flood and then diversify to give us the rich flora that we have today with gigantic numbers, I think something like 250,000 species of angiosperms at this time. Flowering plants are of great value to mankind as they're useful in so many different ways. Not only do they provide us with beautiful landscapes and many different food items, but as Dr. Silvius tells us, flowering plants can also teach us a very important spiritual lesson. And I believe God intended for us to stand in awe of this part of his creation. We have the great teacher himself, Jesus our Lord, standing in the, the field pointing to the lilies and saying, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And he was using there the, the lesson of the beauty of the lilies, whatever these flowers were that his followers were asked to look at and to consider, using that as a lesson to remind us that the great creation and beauty of the flower should teach us that we should not worry about how we're clothed, that God who made them would also provide clothing and the supplies that we need. And, like everything else that God created, flowering plants were designed by the Creator for specific purposes. 
he wants us to be stewards and to use the flowering plants and to use the food and the nuts and the lumber and so on for our use. But he also wants us to realize that he created them uh, with purposes of their own, purposes that he identified in Genesis 1 when he said he saw that it was good. God created the grass and the herb and the tree-yielding fruit, and he saw that it was good. He gave them the ability to reproduce and to fulfill their purposes in the landscape, which go beyond the purposes just for man alone. Therefore, we have the basis for stewardship of the plants and, of course, the animals and the other creatures as well. So uh, God assigns value and purpose to his creation, and we can use that for our purposes and yet also give glory to him by how we use them. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.